In high school, I took a class in art. I wasn't any good, but I liked it. So I enrolled at the Johannesburg School of Art. And why did they accept me? Because I had $60. I got through the first year somehow. In the second year, a lettering professor called me in and he said, Mr. Gerson. I said, yes, sir. He said, you're a nice young man and you work hard. You have absolutely no talent whatsoever. <laughs> everyone, welcome to the Future Podcast. In this episode, I sit down with educator, entrepreneur, and marketing master, Errol Gerson, who has been teaching management, entrepreneurship, and leadership for over 48 years at the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. We're also joined by my good friend and founder and executive producer at Crimson and Cognac, Shima Hassanlu, actress Haley Leitman, and founder and creative director at MSD Studio, Mace Serafi. Coming up on this episode of The Future, we hear the story of how Errol, a failed graphic designer, became an amazing salesman, accountant, and entrepreneur. He shares how he helps students win $10,000 in client work in a day and sell their designs to Sting. And he reveals the wild stunts he pulled to land some of the biggest metal bands of the 80s as clients. Lean in, buckle up, because you're about to get four decades of experience into a meaty 90-minute conversation, brilliant ideas, and amazing stories. Right. I think the intention here was just to have a more casual conversation with you and to let our audience know who you are, the mastermind behind 50 years of teaching at Art Center and all the things that you are. Since 1971, Arrow's been teaching at Art Center to the delight of many creative people from different backgrounds, from design to photography, illustration. He's the longest running teacher at Art Center, right? And I think you've broken all the records now, mm-hmm. if I'm correct. So he's as much of the institution as anything else. So whenever you speak to somebody who is a former Arrow disciple, they just gush. They just gush. Now, as we've done this dance once before, Arrow and I, I somehow miss this class despite hearing about his legendary status i miss this class so i'm making up for lost time right now i really am i'm getting to travel back in time back to the future if you will that i can then now have this dialogue and hear these wonderful stories backed by the principles and this wealth of knowledge that arrow has to offer i I just i don't i'm not going to talk about your age but your ability to recall names facts figures to this you're as sharp as you ever were. So this is amazing Thank for you, me. Chris. And what I want to do is to use our little platform to make sure people are able to receive this gift because they will not sign up if they don't know who Arrow is. And for the 6,300 students who are privileged enough to have him as an instructor, they know. For the clients who have had the benefit of his knowledge, they know. But that's a very small drop in this worldwide web that we're living in. And so... Here I am. I'm just a kid trying to learn at the master's feet. So I, I want to pull this out and share it with our community so they can receive this gift, but they got to show up. You have to show up. You have to take action. I've heard about this class that you teach called Contagious Selling, a workshop. 
and every time I get to see you, something prevents us from having that conversation. So I'm really curious what contagious selling is and how you teach it and what you talk about. So I don't want to get in the way. I just want to have some dialogue with you. So can you share what some of the big ideas are? Or with pleasure. I think, Chris, um, the first thing is that the minute you use the word sell, mm -hmm. people get this deer in headlights look in their face. And it's a function of the fact that selling, if somebody says no, is an attack on an individual. I see. As opposed to you're simply selling a service, you have to make sure that you remove yourself. Otherwise, the impact on the self becomes huge. So I think the first thing is attitude. So the first night of this subject, we turn the lights off in the classroom and in blood red letters, huge, the word salesman comes up. And then I turn it off and I tell them, take a pen, and write down the first thing that comes to mind. The results of what they write down are staggering. And it hasn't changed in probably the 48 years I've been at Art Center. The adjectives are liar, cheat, scumbag, used cars, Kirby vacuum cleaners, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because they totally. are associating sales with manipulation. Mm -hmm. And then I say, okay, so I get that you think salesmen are less than nice people. But what do you do for a living? And the student says, I'm an illustrator, I say. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Ask this person, what are you? I'm a product designer. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. And after a while, they say, okay, why you keep saying we're not? And I say, because you're all salesmen. Because if you can't sell your illustration, your graphic design, your product, you never get to get any clients. And then the lights go on. And then I say, let me give you my definition of selling. Selling is making somebody else's excited about the thing you're excited about. Yes. And everybody goes, wow. See, it's all about attitude because attitude is everything. So in that moment, I say to the students that if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at will change. sort of they look and I say listen carefully to me if you change the way you look at things the things you look at change for example in 1898 old man Nordstrom started a company in Seattle called Nordstrom's it was a little haberdashery and over the door he had a sign if you do something nice for a customer he'll tell a friend if you piss him off he'll tell 20 <laughs> and wow. that's what attitude's about. Selling is simply doing somebody a favor. When blind goes to a client, they're doing them a favor. And instead of going to do the me, me, me sell, what they do is they educate clients. So let's presume I'm a graphic designer, Chris, and I'm called into a roofing company. What am I going to pitch? My graphic design? On the contrary. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to say, I'd like to give you a brochure. The brochure says that you're in the business of saving lives. Really? What do you mean? Well, if you have a bad roof, there are holes in it, mice will get in, rats will get in. 
You get salmonella, you'll get poison. The worst of all worlds, the rats will eat through the wires and the place will burn down. So in point of fact, you're in the business of saving lives. Wow. The lights go on. That's reframing. It's my favorite word, by the way. Mm. And that's how we begin. I get them to change their perspective on what selling is. So then the question will always arise. But if the client says no, so what does no mean? Well, no means he or she doesn't want to buy from me. No, it doesn't. No means next opportunity. That's all it means. Next opportunity to do what? To convince them, because obviously if they said no, what they're saying is, convince me. If you're put off by the word no, then unfortunately you'll never get to yes. And then I introduced them to two books. So in 1986, I went to Harvard and I studied at the law school in the negotiation project. And there were two professors there, William Urey and Roger Fisher. And they wrote two books that I have been an evangelist for since they came out. And the books are Getting Past No and Getting to Yes. And that's what selling's all about. First, I got to get you past no. And then I'm 60% home, but I haven't got the sale because now I got to get you to yes. And those two men taught me more about negotiation. And it was just a remarkable experience. And so I love to share that with them. And I give a lecture on, on this particular subject. And that's how I think we breed contagious selling. So you're overcoming a pretty major obstacle there. And you do it in very dramatic fashion. And I think the theatrics of it, I can envision this in my mind. The lights, the blood red, and, and all the designers are cringing because the word sales, salesperson it's, it's kind of antithetical to, I think, what we define ourselves as a creative being, that people should just want to say yes purely because we're good-hearted and we have a, an abundance of talent, but then reality hits. So can you talk a little bit more about the psychology, the impact, and the resistance? Because I think you're a gifted storyteller and a philosopher, aside from many other things that you are, but it can't be that easy where you say it and they're like, you are right. You are so right. Tomorrow, I'm a salesman. So when you hear that and, or you, you, you hear the resistance, how do you help them get around that? Because if you can do this, you've done the world a giant favor in the creative space, at least. So my philosophy, Chris, is very simple. Clients don't buy products or services. They buy feelings. Every human being has three states. They have an adult state, a parent state and a child state. The adult state evaluates what they're listening to and they process it in the prefrontal cortex, in the front of your brain. So all it does is it processes. Then the parent says, oh, I've listened to the adult. It's making some good sense. I think, I think I'd like to hear more. And then the child, who is the ultimate buyer, cells from a part of the brain called the limbic brain, which doesn't process anything. The child says, I want it. And so when you do that, when you can align the parent, the adult, and the child, then it turns out that selling something to somebody is simply doing them a favor. So I had an illustrator 
come to me in class and say, I'm dropping out of school. Why? I can't pay the tuition. Okay. Tell me what you do. She said, I paint animals. I said, show me your work. She showed me her work and it was stunning. I have never seen such exquisite work. One of the images was a half-painted horse. I said to her, Sunday morning, I want you to meet me in Burbank at this address. She looked at me. She met me. The place that we met was the Paddock Riding Club, which is the most exclusive riding club in Los Angeles. I told her, bring your easel, bring this half-painted painting, and bring all your paints with you. And she did. We got there before it opened. And I had her set up very near where the people bring their horses out. She set up her easel, and I said, paint the rest of the horse. She said, why do I do this? I said, watch what's going to happen. About an hour later, exactly as I had envisioned, a woman with her two children brought the two horses out, walked past her, stopped, and said to her, and I told her this would happen, is that, is that you, you painted that? Yeah. Do you do commissions? Yes. And she said to me, and how much should I charge? And I said, well, what do you think? She said, how's a hundred dollars? I said, a hundred dollars? Don't even take the paints out for a hundred dollars. <laughs> Tell them it's a thousand dollars for one sitting and two thousand for two sittings. Sure enough, this woman with her two children at the most exclusive writing club commissioned a two-sitting painting, and by the time the day ended, she had four commissions for close to 10 grand. If you change the way you look at things, things you look at will change. It's, Chris, in many ways, what I want to do is I want to get people to jump outside of their skin. I had a student, a graphic designer, who had done an incredible work for a Sting, the artist. And it was magnificent. It was a brochure. And he said, boy, I would like to get it to Sting. I said, so why don't you? He said, well, well what do I do, just walk up to him? I said, well, if you know where he is, yeah. So I told him to buy the calendar section of the newspaper. And sure enough, two weeks from then, Sting was giving a performance at the Hollywood Bowl. I said, you're going to go to the Hollywood Bowl with your work under your arm in brown paper bag, but you're going to dress like a roadie. You're going to put a bandana on. You're not going to shave for a week. You're going to put electric cords. You're going to put a belt with drills. And you're going to make what are called, you know, when you go to a concert, they have these laminates that allow you backstage. I said, make 10 fake laminates and have them laminated and put them on your belt. He said, then what do I do? I said, you walk up to the gate and the guard will look at you presume you're a roadie, you'll say, how you doing? He'll say, how you doing? And you'll walk in. Well, he tells the story, he teaches at Art Center this to this day, that he walked up to the guard and forgive me, he thought he was gonna lose his bowels. And all the guard said was, hey, and he went, hey, and he walked in. And then he walked to the back of the stage where the dressing rooms were, and there was another guard. And I told him to just Tip your finger like you're saluting him. He tipped him and the guard went, hey, and he walked back there. And about four minutes later, and this is, in his case, pure life, Sting walked out. He walked up, he unwrapped it and gave it to him and said, this is for you. 
Sting licensed the images from him and paid him $24,000. If you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. If we can get outside of ourselves, Chris, then the risk is zero. What's the name of this graphic designer that teaches at our So school? he's always asked me to please... Oh, don't tell. Not, not I say use keep his it. name and out of deference, I, say. I will do that. Okay. But I want to share with you an even more personal story of how I got on this journey. When I graduated USC in 1971, America was in a recession. And I was a foreign student from South Africa, and I knew I had a one-year practical training visa, and I didn't want to go back because I left South Africa for political reasons because of apartheid. And I sent out my resume, and I had good grades, and I had been the chairman of the Finance Association, and 24 resumes later, deafening silence, nothing. So I went up to the dean's office and asked if I could see all the resumes, and they gave them to me. They were all on cheap bond paper. They all used Times New Roman, the ugliest font in the history of mankind, and they all did the same thing. Name, telephone number, career objective, education, and how good you are. And I thought to myself, wow, no wonder I'm not getting any calls. So I went back to my apartment and my neighbor was an architect and I said, Sherry, is there a thing called good paper? She says, oh, of course, come with me. She put me in her car and we drove to Kelly Paper in Santa Monica. And I walked in and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. And this man brought out a Strathmore that was the most gorgeous paper I'd ever seen. And I asked him how much, and he put out a number that scared the hell out of me. I said, sir, I can only afford five pieces. He says, hang on. They found an off-cut piece and he was able to cut me five pieces. And he said, you want standard paper, eight and a half by 11? I said, nope. I want you to cut it eight and a half by 11 and one eighth. He said, there's no such paper. I said, there is now. So he cut it for me, and I went to one of those little printing places called Sir Speedy. Mm. And I asked them, are there any other typefaces besides? And he threw this book at me of type. Oh my God, it was fantastic. And it was from Pacific Type House in Venice. And I opened it up and I went through and I saw Verdana and I fell in love. My goodness. I said, I want you to put my resume in Verdana. He sent it out and he said, come back in a week. A week later, they brought a plate in those days, and it was my resume, and he said, we're going to put it on this Heidelberg, and I'm going to do it offset. I said, what does that mean? He said, it could be like your, your resume jumps off the page. Wow. So he finished it, and it was fantastic. And he said, but your paper's the wrong size, so we're going to cut it. I said, no, sir, you're not going to cut it. I went to USC, and USC is cardinal and gold. I asked him if he knew the cardinal color. He said, well, that's a Pantone PMS color. And he looked it up and he said, whatever it was. I said, can you mix that and put that on the one-eighth top of my resume? And he went, yes, but why? I said, just humor me. He did, and he charged me some money for it. He said, you know, you can't fold this because it'll never fit into a number 10 envelope. I said, that's okay, sir. I've already had envelopes made, 11 by 13. And I sent five resumes out. And three days later, I got a call from IBM in New York. 
A guy said to me, are you Errol Gerson? I said, yes. He said, do you know why I'm calling you? I said, I do. He said, you pissed me off. I said, I know. He said, how do you know? I said, because HR gave you 60 resumes and you tapped them on the desk and one of them stuck out an eighth of an inch and you pulled it out and it was mine. He said, we're flying you to New York. And I got three interviews in the next week. Chris, that was the day that I realized my grandfather had taught me something when I was a child. And he said to me, Errol, if they never say anything about you, you never arrived. And that was the first day in the rest of my life in the way I think about things. Fantastic. <laughs> if we were live streaming, a bunch of heart emojis would probably be flying right now, but we're not. This is going to be excellent. I think you, uh, with your experience in real life and as a teacher, there's a treasure trove of stories that I'm hoping that you'll be as generous as you have been thus far in sharing with us because the stories make the lessons so concrete and relatable. Because yes. we understand, I think, the theory part, which is maybe the adult and the parent having a conversation. But when you tell the stories, the child comes out and it's like, whoo, I want to feel that. Is that why you say in life you just need to stand out an eighth of an inch? That's all you need to? Or you say something like that, right? Chris, that's exactly what I say. You know, when I graduated USC, I went to Arthur Anderson. And after four years, I started making excuses for not going to work. And I sat myself down and I said, you can't do that. That's disingenuous. And I walked into my boss and I said, boss, I'm leaving. He went, why? I said, because I hate this. He said, why? I said, because this is the science of what was. I'm interested in the science of what will be. He said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to start my own accounting firm. He said, oh, good luck with that. How many clients do you have? I said, none yet. And I went home and I had a few thousand dollars saved up. And I went to Century City and I asked if I could rent an office, the smallest one they had. And they did, 180 square feet. One office, a desk, and a telephone. And I sat there and I went, what do I do now? And then I remembered what somebody had once taught me. The reason people rob banks is that's where the money is. So I'd gone to USC, so I was a Trojan, part of that family. So I called the dean of the law school and asked if I could teach fourth-year law students on business management, running their own practice. She said, with pleasure, and I started teaching. From that, I got four clients in the first semester. I then taught in the medical school, I then taught in the dental school, and then I decided I wanted music clients. So I discovered the Sunset Strip, and I printed up an article after doing some research on how musicians get screwed by record companies. That's what it said on the front cover. And I went to listen to bands, and when it was over, I walked to the back and I handed them out. I had a little card on the back. I didn't say anything else. Sure enough, within about a month, we had 10 bands as clients. We moved from 180 square feet into 400 square feet, and by 1992, we had offices in four states. All I did was I reached out to the family who knew me, I was just a teaching at Art Center at the time. And so all of a sudden, photographers and illustrators and graphic designers and product designers were all becoming my clients. 
And what's interesting, Chris, is I learned the power of WOMA, word of mouth advertising. Mm -hmm. You see, 95% of all sales come from referrals. So when I got Robert Miles Runyon, who was one of the great designers in LA as a client, well, the minute people heard that I was representing Bob Runyon, and I started getting other major clients, Josh Freeman, Josh White, all kinds of people. The power of referrals is something that most people don't realize. And all you got to do, if you want to double your business overnight, what do you do? You ask your client for a referral. And instead of one, you get two. Every new client I got the next morning, a limousine arrived. And a gentleman got out with homemade baked breads and homemade jams and homemade butter. And it said, welcome to the Gerson family of clients. We did that for every single client. On Christmas, we made candy apples, blood red, 20 of them. We wrapped them in cellophane and had the limousine service deliver them to every single client. Inside was a note. This is not a gift. The real gift is the donation we've made to Children's Hospital Los Angeles in your name. Never stop doing that. Every one of my clients got a birthday card every year. And the birthday card was blank, and it always came from one of the great museums, and I always hired a calligrapher to write the same thing. Happy birthday. You thought I'd forget. Not a chance. What would happen? They'd call me. I got a call from a client saying, Errol, I just had the um, vice chairman of a large record company here. And at the time, my birthday card was the photography of Imogene Cunningham, which is an, she's an astonishing photographer. And he asked me why I had this on my desk. And he said, oh, my accountant sends out business cards. And the man said something interesting. Mine doesn't. Maybe I should call yours. And the guy did. And he became a client for 10 years. If you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. So some, some questions for you. I, I think you've told this story before because I've heard it and I want to hear it again. Tell me about that time that you walked in to get the music band, uh, the artists, because I think it's a good story worth hearing. There was a band in LA that I wanted very badly, and the band is Megadeth. And I love their music. Marty Friedman, who played lead guitar, was just incredible. Dave Mustaine had come from, you know, the great bands. And no matter how many times I called their manager, I couldn't get a call. And it frustrated me. And I used every trick I knew. It never worked. I went to a chocolate company in Beverly Hills called Teuscher. And I said to the gentleman, can you make a chocolate telephone? He said, what do you mean? I mean a chocolate <laughs> telephone. He said, you mean one that works? I said, no, just a chocolate phone. The buttons have to work and you have to be able to lift the cradle off. He said, this will cost a lot of money. I said, humor me. He came back five minutes later. He said, $700. Wow. I went, done. Can I give you half now and half when it's ready? Yeah. <laughs> I gave him the money, and a week later, he said, it's ready. And I walked in, and I'm not sure if you guys remember, but phones in those days had the push buttons, yeah? It 
was magnificent in every detail. I paid him the money and he put it in a box and I drove at two miles an hour to the plastic mart in Santa Monica. And I had them make a three quarter inch plastic box, which cost me another $150. And I put the phone in it. I went back to the office and I called one of the major model agencies. And I said, I would like to hire a model who's at least six feet tall, who is easy on the eyes, but I want her dressed in an antique Western Union outfit. No problem. And they told me it would be $600. Done. And she arrived, and she was very tall, very beautiful, and they had rented from Western Costume the outfit. I told her, your job is to deliver this phone to this gentleman. And no matter what happens, you put it in his hands. You do not leave it at reception. So to cut a long story short, she went, she walked in, everybody freaked out. The receptionist went, what is this? And she said, delivery for, this man's name. She said, well, I'll do, no, I have to deliver it myself. And she did. She put it on his desk and said, this is for you. And she turned around and walked out. He opened up the phone and it said, eat the cradle, then call me, Errol Gerson. <laughs> Five minutes later, he said, you sent this to me? Yeah. You've been calling me for weeks, right? Yeah. He said, can you meet me for lunch in 15 minutes? And we met for lunch. And a week later, we signed Megadeth as a client. Uh, they're, By the they're way, like speechless. They are. how much did the phone cost? It cost nothing. Because over the next three years, we probably earned three to $400,000 off that band. Yeah. Oh, wow. I, I can't believe you actually exist because the way that you, these stories and these things that you've actually executed on is so in alignment with my thinking of like using design thinking for sales and business development. Like we as designers are the most creative people on the freaking planet and we're doing things the same way as everyone else. And you're telling me story after story after story. I'm like, that's what design is. It's not just type. Like people are like forgetting what we're doing as designers. You see, a year ago I was being interviewed and somebody asked me, what's the purpose of design? And that's a really good question. And I thought about it for less than a second and I said, design makes our lives better. And it does. Everything that designers do, from graphic design to product design to illustration, makes my life better. To walk in and see a Le Corbusier chair just makes my heart sing. When I see exquisite graphic design, there's nothing like it. I happen to love typography. And so when Doyle Young, God rest his soul, was at Art Center, I would spend every moment I could just sitting at the back of his class because I was in the presence of greatness. He was the master. Without a doubt, a master. I don't know who this guy is. Oh, now, now I feel like a fraud. Yeah, you fraud. Get out of here. <laughs> this is see, I wanted to go to Art Center, but I, I they told me how much it costs. And I was like, my dad was like, does that come with someone to do the homework too? They didn't laugh, but Yeah, it's Art a Center. Significant oh my god. Today. Yeah. I'm it is. Okay. It's all right. It's all good. You're here now. <laughs> but so, you know, I'll quote Malcolm Gladwell. 
I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. <laughs> yeah. He's got the crazy hair. <laughs> Four years after you're out of school, nobody gives a damn where you went to school. He went to a tiny little college in Canada. And he's one of the most prolific authors wow. on the face of the earth. David and Goliath blink all the great books. Nobody asks you where you went to school. What they want to see is they want to see your portfolio. Yeah. So I had a student in class and she said to me, I'm not sure if I like you or hate you. I said, well, that's great because at least I got a rise out of you. I said, what part of it, what part of it are you unsure about? She said, well, you know, I always thought of design as pure and you're coming at it from this selling aspect. I said, well, hang on. Is there a difference? She said, well, selling is dirty. I said, oh. I said, what's your major? She said, photography. So I said, okay. Let's presume we're at a charity dinner. At a charity dinner, everybody eventually comes around and says, and what do you do? That's right. So I said, okay, we're at a charity dinner. And somebody says, and what do you do? She said, I'm a photographer. And I went, <laughs> She said, that's rude. I said, what do you photograph? Do you do babies? Do you do weddings, bar mitzvahs? What do you shoot the kids in the soccer team? She said, no, I specialize in children's photography. I said, oh. She said, so what would you say if you were at the dinner? I said, okay, ask me. All right, we're at a charity dinner and somebody turns to you and says, what do you do? I look at the person and I say, I shoot people. Mostly children. <laughs> what do you mean? Oh, no, 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 you misunderstood. I happen to be an advertising photographer and my clients are all in the fashion business. I just help them sell products by getting the best out of children. Wow. She was so hung up on this word selling. And you see this, Chris, because the teaching that you do and telling people how to increase their fees. It's all about believing in themselves. You know, and I had a, I write a lot on LinkedIn, a lot of essays. I love writing. And I had somebody respond to me a week ago and say, you use the word faith and I have a lot of difficulty with the word faith. So I wrote to her and I said, let's reframe that word to faithful. What is faithful? And she said, well, faithful is aligning yourself with something and not varying from it. I said, that's good. So what is it you want to be faithful to? She said, well, to my craft. I said, well, what is your craft? She said, I'm a graphic designer. I said, and what do you do for your clients? And she wrote back and she said, Nobody ever asked me that question. I said, okay, I'll ask you another question. Why do you do graphic design? She wrote back nine volumes. She couldn't stop. Because Simon Sinek taught us, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. The French call that the raison d'etre, a reason for living. Your why is more important. If you ask 100 people, what do you do? They'll all tell you. Ask them, how do you do it? Half can tell you. But ask them, why do you do what you do? So I'd like to ask you, why are you a graphic designer? 
me right now? Yeah. On the spot. Super triggering question for me because <laughs> I I no longer I no longer get paid to be a designer. And so for me, when I tell people I'm a designer because I'm not charging for it, I feel like a fraud. Even though graphic design is at the core of every little single thing that I do. Of course. And if something is aesthetically not in alignment with me, it's out. It's, it's, the, it's the foundation of how I think and how I see the world. But because I'm not getting paid, because I'm not sending out an invoice for me working in InDesign or After Effects, I feel really strange to call myself that, right? So, but the reason, the reason to go into design was because it just naturally showed up as this is the area where all the things that I'm into actually comes together so that I can actually take my mindset and be of service to people around me. I can take this way of thinking and not only help people around me and help businesses grow and do all these things, I could actually like make some cash. And actually, I can make some really nice cash and drive a car where everyone thinks I'm driving my dad's car at the age of 25. That's what graphic design did for me. So if I said to you, you are what you think about most of the time, would that resonate? Absolutely. Good. Yeah, and it totally scares me too because then it's, it, it's like I have this responsibility to keep this mindset in check and that's got to be the most important driving force every day. Now, you used a, an interesting word, scare. Scare is the other side of fear. So fear is a very interesting word because it's just four letters. And it really stands for false evidence that appears real. Because that's all fear is. I heard that is. from this guy. <laughs> no? That's oh, all yeah? fear is. <laughs> and if you reframe it, it becomes, I'm finally empowered to achieve results. That... Is a mic drop. Yeah, it is. Right? Haley, did you get that? You, are you writing that? <laughs> Send that to me later. Yeah. <laughs> for me, the greatest privilege of my life has been teaching for 48 years. Um, when, I'm, when, when I'm no longer going to take finite breaths in this world and somebody were to say to me, what are you most proud of? My two children. That's the biggest pride of my life. Mm. But the ability to have touched 6,300 people's lives is something that nobody, if Art Center had never paid me, it wouldn't have made any difference. Because I'll tell you why I teach. I get to touch the future. Now you're on the future. Well, that's a good thing. It's all come home. It's a good thought. I love that you know the number 6,300 just like that. So apparently this is important to you. He's a numbers guy, I by mean, the way. Oh, yeah, you don't like, mess, he's a CPA, okay? So <laughs> throw I, some math problems, you'll solve it right now. Yes. Yeah, I've kept the number of students numbers. of every semester since I started in 1971. The other thing that students often tell me is that the word fear is often used with the word fail. And... For some reason, our society has made the word fail a pejorative. And I find that ridiculous because the word fail to me, and I love acronyms, so the word fail to me <laughs> simply means a first attempt in learning. Because the first time I took a photo class at Art Center, 
I had to take the film and load it onto a Nikkor reel. And I went into a dark room and all I heard was crinkle, crinkle, and I knew I was doing it wrong. Then I said to myself, self, you're an idiot. Turn the lights on and learn to load the film in the light and do it 20 times. And I did, and I closed the lights, and I loaded the film perfectly the first time. Because first attempt in learning was all I had to do. We are so afraid of failure. This concept of failing, you know, when you were 10 or 11 months old, you started to take your first steps probably. And your parents were so excited and so happy, but you fell down again. And they went, good, get up, get up. And they kept giving you so much admiration and so much confidence. But then you got to be five or six. You got to play outside very nicely for about three, four hours. But you had a little bit of mud on your shoes and you walked into the house <laughs> and you tracked mud in the house. and Somebody yelled at you. You see, they forgot because when we were 11 months old, they wanted us to fail. But as we get older, the world doesn't want us to fail. And that's a huge mistake. You have to learn to kick your own ass because somebody else is eventually going to do it for you. I'm happy to do it for Ricky and the team, so. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Ricky. I love you, Ricky. <laughs> Nothing. Okay, I want to circle back on something because I think I got clarity on the three person or the three personality types inside your mind, the adult, the parent, and the child. The adult was clear to me. They, they gather information. They evaluate. The child feels, doesn't have words. They want what they want. It's all feeling-based. Can you explain to me what the parent's job is in, in the mind again? Yeah, the parent listens to the adult takes the information and makes a crucial decision. Okay. Is this right for the child? So is that like the executive producer? Possibly. <laughs> you know, when you go and pitch a client, client listens to you, there's something you need to know that's very, very important. And it's all based on the work of Dr. Daniel Kahneman, who is a Nobel laureate who wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. He said... Given a choice, a human being will always make a decision to avoid pain and seek gain. Which means that when you're selling a client, they will more than likely stay with the status quo, the person they had before, than go with you, even if it's a good idea. So what do you do? You have to reframe. You have to create what's called urgency. You have to ask questions like, so if you continue doing the approach to branding that you're doing, are there any downside risks? You know, when I went to IBM and had that interview, the first question the interviewer said to me was, why should IBM hire you? Very stern. And I said, you know, that's a really good question, but I have a better one for you. Why should I work for IBM? And I mean no insult in my question, nor am I being arrogant. He spent the next 25 minutes selling me on why I should work for IBM. That's how you interview. Yeah. Interview them. They're paying you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if a, if a graphic design firm invited my firm into pitch and um, they said, so tell us about you. And I said, well, 
before I do, I'd like to ask you a question. Why did you invite me here today? What is it about my company that made you want to invite me? You see what I'm doing? I'm reframing. I'm making them sell me by selling themselves. It's like a first date. Anytime I am soliciting a new client, mm -hmm. the first thing I do is my homework. Mm -hmm. And I will spend at least a week to two weeks mm -hmm. finding out everything about them. Talk to their clients, talk to people who work with them until I know everything about them. Mm -hmm. I print it all out and I put it in a, in a very nice manila folder with the name of the company on it. And I walk in with that and almost 99% of the time, because I open it up, they say, oh, what's that? Oh, what's that? That's all about you. What do you mean? Well, I can't walk in here if I don't know anything about you. So well, what did you find out about us? And now I have a dialogue with a friend. There's no, there's no them versus me. We're just having a dialogue. Mm -hmm. The fact that I've prepared is part of what I call the six Ps, which says proper persistent planning prevents poor performance. Mm -hmm. We have some, let me make a political statement. We have somebody in the White House who doesn't prepare for meetings. I think that's very dangerous and it, it's disconcerting to me. If I walked into a client meeting unprepared, I might as well insult the client because that's what I'm doing. So once I'm prepared, I feel on top of the world. Okay. And when it's time and the client says, so what's this going to cost me? The answer is nothing. What do you mean nothing? Well, see, I don't believe in costs. If you ask me what level of investment your company will have to make in this project, I have good news for you. It's not going to cost you $80,000. Oh, thank God. How much will it cost? About sixty-five. So you see what I did? By setting an upper expectation, now when I throw the number out, there's relief as opposed to if I threw the first number out, they get, in Italian, we call agida. You know, they get indigestion. So I never use the word cost. I never have and I never will. Cost is something that is an anathema to a human being. But an investment has the concept of a return on investment. Mm -hmm. So when you're investing in my company, you have an expectation of return. And that's the business we're in, creating return on investment. Hey, future fam, Mr. Ben Burns here. Thank you so much for tuning in to what we have to say. Your support is what helps us produce content just like this podcast. And if you want to support us further, the best way that you can do this is to check out the courses, toolkits, and consulting offerings we've created to help you grow as creative professionals. We are lucky enough to have produced a course with Mr. Errol Gerson himself. It's called Managing Money. Listen, you've got goals and you want to see them through. And wherever you are in your business, having a good eye on your money is essential to growth. Without some basic understanding of your business's finance, it's, it's pretty hard to set up financial goals and know whether or not you're headed in the right direction. In our Managing Money course, Errol Garrison guides you on how to manage your money like a pro. Learn how to make the right decisions for your business and plan for the future ahead. Just head to academy.thefuture.com 
to grab the Managing Money course and get ready for a bright future. I'm already like taking it personally that I've known you since 2012 and I haven't heard of this gentleman because <laughs> I, I could have used this, I could have used this information over 15 years ago because my brain was thinking this way and I thought I was out of my mind because people looked at me when I would say things, you know, similar to your stories and doing things like that because I have some of those stories and people looked at me I, like I, I was, people looked at me like I was crazy and I really thought like there must be something wrong with the way I'm thinking because there's no one out here thinking like this. And now you're sitting here and I'm like, why didn't I go to grad school at Art Center when I could have gone? Why did that $65,000 thing trip me up? It's just, it's, it's just a loan. It's not a big deal. Like that would have actually been really life-changing for me. It was an investment. Yeah, it and was, it would have, been, and, and it made me, it made me freak out. I was like, this is like, I'm not worthy of that investment at that time in my life. Like I, that's what I, that was the thinking. And so I went into producing instead of going to art yeah. center. That, so it changed, so it changed the entire trajectory. Had I gone, I probably would still be a working designer, mm. you know? So, I mean, so, I'm… You're illustrating a point for us. <laughs> regret the things you do. Don't regret the things you didn't do. So had you bit the bullet, had you defied your parents, had you spent the money, you would be in a totally different stratosphere today. I 100% totally. believe that. Totally. Right? I mean, you know what? I'd probably actually still be in the same arena. But instead of the person like being of service to the designers, because that's what I feel my job is as an executive producer. Like the designers are like who I take care of, number one. I would have had producers taking care of me, which I would like to be babysat, you know? Sure. I would like someone to take care of me. But instead, I had to learn to take care of other people because my skill set was not to the level of the designers around me. So I was like, I'm out. I'm not doing the work anymore. Mm -hmm. But you're still helping. Oh, every day. Like, and that's, you still that's have the that mission. blue aura light around you. Every day. Because that's what helpers do. Oh my God, you can see that? <laughs> <laughs> There's a gel. We threw it on the light. So, yes. The question that I always ask people is, do you ever express gratitude to yourself for who you are? Not until recently. Not until, not until um, coming face to face with like um, the lack thereof. Yes. And what that can do. Yeah. And um, yeah. And so now... Now it's something that when I see in other people, like I see designers on Instagram being so hard on themselves for having a typo on their Instagram stories. And then call, they'll, they'll say like, I'm such a stupid bee. And I write back to them. I'm like, please don't ever say that about yourself. You're like one of the most talented illustrators I've seen. You've been in my class and you're mad at yourself for a spelling mistake on Instagram. Mm. Who cares? Like don't. So people, people really aren't aware, especially designers really aren't aware of like what they're giving and they haven't been told and they and but the important thing is they need to have it from within so they can they need to be more powerful more confident to actually give more to the communities around them like we need more designers the most important acceptance comes from ourselves you have to accept yourself accolades from other people come and go but self-acceptance which leads to gratitude which leads to happiness. It's the cornerstone of living a, a fulfilled life. And I constantly am telling students to be aware of gratitude. You know, people see me in the cafeteria at Art Center, like it happened last night. Two students came to the cashier, got their food, 
put the credit card in and went by. Never said a word. They got to the table and I said, excuse me. I turned around and said, you, you forgot something. Oh, girl came back. She said, what did I forget? I said, you forgot to say thank you to Maria, the cashier, because she's a lovely lady and, you know, simply ignored her. She went, I'm so sorry. I said, don't be sorry. Just say thank you. And I've been doing this for almost 30 years, and I often will get an email from people saying, you remember the night you told me to say thank you? That was a transformative experience for me. Gratitude is very, very important. And we don't say thank you to ourselves enough. I love that you made someone go back and say thank you. Because when I was teaching at Otis, I gave a homework assignment to go to a bar, order a drink, and have a conversation with the bartender. Now, some students were like, I don't drink. Fantastic. I'm like, great, do it at Starbucks. And some students said, I'm too scared to go in and have a conversation with the person behind the counter. And I said, why? I don't know. What if they think I'm weird? I'm like, well, you are weird. You clearly are weird if you have a, you, you're afraid of having a conversation with someone giving you a coffee. I said, if you don't know how to talk to people, you're a barista. How are you going to work with a team on, a, on my VFX pipeline? We've done some VFX pipelines here, and anyone that wasn't like communicating screwed up the entire process and made Shima stay here till 4 a.m. once a week. That guy now works at Google. He got, he got himself in check. But... <laughs> David Park, if you're listening, I love you. <laughs> so um, there, was, there was a student at Art Center who came to me after class and he said, class had all left and he said, you bother me. Okay. He said, want to know why? I said, absolutely. He said, your overarching religiosity is sickening. Wow. My overarching <laughs> religion. He said, yes, it's obvious. You're spouting this gratitude. It's all religious BS. Oh. 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 I said, okay. I said, so you know what religion I am? He said, of course. You're a born-again Christian. I said, you know, my rabbi would probably be very surprised to know that. <laughs> but okay. Um, tell me what's the problem. He says, well, just so you know, I'm grateful to nobody for anything. I went, oh, your parents for birthing you? I'm an accident of a sperm and an egg. I didn't ask to be born. Okay. Your teachers in high school, they were paid by property tax. They had to teach me. Okay. How about me? I pay your salary. I don't have to be grateful to you. I said, can I ask you a strange question? Do you have a good bed in your house? <laughs> He went, a good bed? I said, well, you know, one that's not bowed. Because if it was bowed, your back would hurt, and you'd come to school, and you'd tell everybody you have a bad bed. He goes, okay, whatever. I have a good bed. I said, great. Tomorrow morning, when you get up, I want you to turn to your bed and say, thank you for giving me a good night's rest. And he went, two words, four letters and three letters, and he walked out. <laughs> came back a week later, he walked into class and said, I need to see you after class, with a finger pointed. Class left and he went, 
you have no idea the shit you caused me. And I went, fantastic, tell me. <laughs> I was teaching on Monday at the time. He said, I woke up Tuesday morning and I looked at my bed and you jumped in my head and I went, no, I'm not going to do it. And Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday morning rolled around. And it was really a pretty day. And my girlfriend was in the shower and I decided to make breakfast and clean the room and pick some flowers. I went, wow, how romantic. He said, yeah, okay. And then I made my bed and you jumped in my head. And I thought, what the hell? And I looked at my bed and I said, thank you for giving me a good night's rest. And as I said it, my girlfriend came out of the shower. She said, who are you talking to? I'm not talking to anybody. Honey, is there somebody else here? There's nobody here. And I told her the story. I said, well, how is that? He said, she looked at me and said, I wish I was as important as your bed that you would express gratitude to me because I've been with you for seven years. How is that? He said, well, she burst into tears. I said, how is that? He said, we had a six hour conversation like we've never had before. He said, do you want to know what happened? I said, I can already tell you, you started to cry. I get very emotional. He said it's the first time in his life that he felt something. And um, he called his dad, who he hadn't talked to in 12 years. And he still teaches at Art Center, and he has a very successful firm. And he writes to me about once a quarter and says, I'm still grateful for everything I have. I'm no longer an atheist. He told me he was an atheist. And I told him, I feel very sorry for you. He said, why? I said, because you have nobody to talk to during an orgasm. And he thought, he thought that was very funny. <laughs> so, so he said to me, I'm an agnostic, so I guess there's hope for me. And that's a great story about gratitude. What's the name of this teacher? <laughs> she has no problems outing anybody. David yeah. Parker. I love you. Know, here you are. I can't. Okay. Yes. You know, when you're sharing that story, um, I was just picturing what it must be like for this student and um, the pressure that they must have been feeling this whole time. Like, this, it's like a pressure valve, like a, a pressure cooker sort of thing, sure. like where you're just, you're just this constant state, like over, overheating, sure. right? And um, you, you poked and prodded enough to get that pressure valve to just explode. And that caused a big bang in his universe and it changed everything. Of course. And if you hadn't taken the responsibility to do that, if you had just written him off like every single other teacher that ever been in his life, anyone in his life that just written him off, just, you know, that's just the way he is. Who knows if he would even still be around today? I've never who, met who a knows person what in my done. life who's not worth Helping. Never met anybody. The greatest success in my life will be from what I've done to help other people. That's the greatest gift. You know, I, I'm mentoring kids in Silmar. These are gangbangers. And we're teaching them how to make bandanas, tie-dyed bandanas, and sell them. 
teaching entrepreneurship. Tie-dye bandana, yeah. so they're not affiliated with any gang, but the entire rainbow hippie gang? They make gang? their own colors. Yo, graphic design. <laughs> kind of powerful. Kind of powerful. Kind of powerful. Yep. That's crazy. So I'm just sitting here thinking about random questions to ask you just to trigger another story. <laughs> so I'm just not going to ask you. I'm just like, just tell us another story, Errol. What's another story? Chris, I had a, an illustrator whose work made me shudder. It was that good. Every time I saw her work, it took my breath away. And her self-esteem was so low that it was palpable. I reached out to other teachers, great teachers at Art Center, and they all said, we can't reach her. So I said to her, I want you to meet me on the corner of Vermont and Sunset Boulevard this Saturday and bring your markers and bring drawing pad. She said, what's on the corner? I said, don't worry, just meet me there. Well, of course, what's on the corner of Vermont and Sunset is the Children's Hospital. I had called a friend of mine who's a surgeon in the oncology ward for children with cancer and told him that I had an illustrator who wanted to teach the kids in the oncology ward how to draw. But I didn't tell her that. So she met me and she went, okay, where are we going? She said, going upstairs. It's a children's hospital, yeah. What am I going to do? I'm going to teach kids to draw. Me? Yeah. Oh, okay. So we went upstairs, introduced her to the doctor, I gave her a hug and said, bye, and I left. The first day she was there, she spent, I think, seven hours there. And eventually they said to her, you have to go home now. The kids are going to sleep. And she kept going back for years, literally years. And she told me one day, that one of the kids that she was teaching had died the night before. And he left a note for her. And he said, thank you for changing my life. She went on to have the most remarkable career. She still writes to me. And I still shed tears. You see, no matter what I've done, the students have given me back 10 million times more than I've ever given them. Because they've taught me, they've taught me my humanity. And that's the most important thing. And you're right. Without design, honestly, send me to Mars. I wouldn't want to live in a world without design. I really wouldn't. It, it every Part of my home is impacted by design. All the products I buy give me joy. And that's why I'm in such awe of you guys. You know, when I went to high school, Chris, I was bored. And so my grades were very bad. And when I graduated high school, they put a stamp on my diploma not to attend university. That's what it said. So my dad said, well, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. I don't know. In high school, I took a class in art. I wasn't any good, but I liked it. So I enrolled at the Johannesburg School of Art. And why did they accept me? Because I had 
They took anybody with 60 bucks. I got through the first year somehow. In the second year, a lettering professor called me in and he said, Mr. Gerson, I said, yes, sir. He said, you're a nice young man and you work hard. You have absolutely no talent whatsoever. <laughs> that man's name was Mr. Johannes Stupp. And he was the kindest man I ever met in my life. Because he said to me, your talents lie in other areas. Go find them. And uh, I went back to my dad, who was an accountant, and I said, I want to come and work for you. I'll start at the bottom, and that's what I did. And then I came to America, and I went to a tiny little junior college in Costa Mesa, California, called Orange Coast College. 60 bucks a term, and I worked my ass off because the dean asked me, what do I want? And I said, I want to go to the University of Southern California. And he said, good grades, work for the community, get involved in student government, and I listened. I got good grades, I was student body president, I worked for the school to help raise money, and I got a four-year scholarship. So that man who told me I had no talent was the kindest man I ever met in my life. He stopped me making a mistake. All of us meet Mr. Johannes Stop in our lives. Question is, are we listening? You see, this young man in front of me is such a breath of fresh air because what Chris is doing and has done is show the design community the incredible power that they have and he's showing them how to harness it. And very few people have done that. And when I listen to his presentations on the future, it's, it just puts a big grin on my face because it's everything I believe. You know, he is, he is for this generation of designers, honestly, a complete revolution. And what the future is doing is, should be for Art Center. You should be Art Center's online education. If they're smart, that's what they will do. Because, yes, I can teach one class of 25 people, but Christo can teach a million people all over the world, and that's an awesome thing. I would like the numbers on that. <laughs> I have a question for you. I love what you said, that we've all met in our lifetime. Johannes, stop. What made you able to hear? You're a young man at this point in time, right? High school, so I'm thinking late Yeah, teens. I was 19 years 19, old. Right. I was arrogant. Mr. Stupp was a man I had tremendous respect for because he spoke very carefully and the words he used, you know, Chris, you go into a wonderful restaurant and the aromas, and then the food comes, we eat with our eyes and our ears and our nose. When Mr. Stupp spoke, we all listened. And when he sat down, it was almost like a father sitting down with me and saying, Errol, I care about you. And I want you to listen to me because what I'm about to say can be for your benefit. And the message came across in such a nice way. He had called me in and said, you suck, you got no talent. And I'd have flipped him off and that would have been the end of that. But instead he sat me down and we had a wonderful conversation. And 
whenever I sit down and talk with people, I always try to, the most important thing for me is empathy. I try to understand where they're coming from. You know, when I studied with Stephen Covey in Provo, Utah, the man who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, studied. I studied for a week with Stephen at his course. And when we got to habit number six, and he said, seek first to understand and then be understood, all the lights went on. It was the first time that the word empathy had meant anything to me. Seek first to understand then be understood. So a fellow says to his friend, meet me at the library Wednesday at 11 o'clock. I can't, the library is closed. No, it's not, it's open. Excuse me, I've been there and it's closed. Well, you don't know the F you're talking about, it's open. So the two friends go to the library and there's a sign, open from nine to 12, closed from 12 to five. They were both right. When we try to be right, we violate two life rules that I have, which I tell my students. There's only two intentions in life. You have an intention to learn, or you have an intention to be right. If you want to be right, you're going to be very lonely. But if you have an intention to learn, then life changes. I read 25 to 50 pages a day, every single day of my life books that I've never read before. I don't ever want to stop learning because Bob Dylan said, if you're not busy being born, you're busy dying. And so when I'm writing in LinkedIn, I, I feel alive. When I go to class and I've prepared, I prepare usually two days for a lecture, I feel like I'm alive. Otherwise, we just take for granted things and it doesn't make any sense. You said that you never want to stop learning and you're taking it upon yourself to educate yourself. Well, in my life, I, I see like, you know, a lot of millennials and a lot of people like, you know, that are working at the beginning or the middle of their careers, they're open to learning. But what I'm seeing right now is like people like my parents' age, they don't want to learn. They, they or maybe they do, but they say all the time, it's too late for me to learn. There's no point to which I don't really know how, what the, re what the response is to motivate someone. So do you have anything on that? Almost every semester, there's a student who feels disassociated from my class. You can see it. Chris is taught, he knows. You can read it in their face. It's just this withdrawal. Most teachers write them off. I do the exact opposite. I seek them out. And I had one last term, and after four weeks, I said to him, I'll be at school early this week. Stop by and have coffee with me. He said, why? I said, I'd just like to have coffee with you. Do I need another reason? He said, okay. So he came, and uh, we spoke, and he told me about he's a transportation major. And... Uh, He's not as good as anybody else in class. How do you know this? As I look at the other work and mine is not a patch on theirs. Okay. What would it take? He said, well, my viscom skills, very important. Oh, poor. What are you doing about it? This is nothing. I just 
got a bad grade, I'm taking the class again. Oh. You know, I have a student who graduated about four years ago. And he's really good at VizCon and he loves sharing what he knows. Would you like to meet him? Yeah. So I arranged for them to meet. I asked a favor of this student of mine and he spent the next six weeks. This kid's work soared and he became one of the giant leaders in my class. Well, I let him do his taste, the joy of success. Small steps. People try to make big leaps. And what happens if we don't reach? We think we failed. So instead, successive approximations, or what psychologists call baby steps. Growth comes through baby steps. The classes on the future are all baby steps. But when you put them all together, they become this powerhouse of information. I cannot imagine a young designer not availing themselves of every single course because I've looked at them and they're stunning. I can assure you nothing like what the future is doing exists at Art Center. Yes, there are great teachers, but to put all of this in one place and have access to it, it's remarkable. It's just a cornucopia of knowledge. You know, Aristotle said, the more I know, the more I know how little I know. What else do we need to know? I have a question. Um, I think as an instructor, and you might be able to relate to this if you're all teaching, but do you think there's different ways of teaching within the same class? That there's different ways of learning for each student? Because there's like 25 students in one class. So there's like so many different ways of teaching and learning. So how do you... Mace is also a teacher, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I... She teaches well, topography. Thank you. Yeah. Because that is the most insightful and, and spectacular question. What I've learned over 48 years is that there are three tiers in every class. There is the top 10%. There's the middle 60%. And there's the bottom 30%. So now as a teacher, I have a choice. I can teach for the top and I lose the middle and the bottom. I can teach for the bottom and I lose the top and half of the middle. Or I can teach about two thirds between the middle and the top. And when I see the bottom 10% struggling, I reach out and help them. I believe that if you challenge a human being and you support them along the way, they will always rise to meet your level of expectation. But if it doesn't challenge you, it won't change you. It's one of my favorite sayings. Can you elaborate a little bit more about that when it comes to teaching? When I was a kid, I was a good tennis player. I wasn't great. And I wanted to be great. Mm -hmm. So I asked a good friend of mine who was a great player, how did you become this great player? And he said, by playing against people who are better than me and having them beat the crap out of me. And that's exactly what I've done my whole life. When I had a choice of a class at USC, this was a very hard professor or this was the easy, I'll take the hard. Because it's only the hard things in life that teach us anything. Things that are easy, we take for granted. And I have profound belief 
that every student I've ever taught has the potential for greatness. And I'll tell you why. Because greatness is not reserved for great people. It's reserved for anybody. Where does it say greatness is reserved for great people? There's no philosophy book that says that. You know, when Rene Descartes said, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, he told every human being in the world, all you got to do is think. Well, look at the impact that design thinking has had. It's a subject we weren't talking about 25 years ago. But today, design thinking is is what it's about because all strategy comes from design thinking. Today, my students at Art Center, graphic designers, are being hired by McKinsey, BCG, Accenture. Why? Because my students are thinkers. It's a beautiful thing to watch graphic designers fall in love with critical thinking. And so we spend a lot of time talking about critical thinking in class. Sure, and then teaching it is also another joy. It's the greatest joy of my life. Happiest day for me is Thursday, because I know (laughs) I'm going to Art Center. That's my happy day. Arrow, can I ask you to expand a little bit more on critical thinking? Critical thinking. Yeah, what does that mean? Uh, Because I think there's a lot of confusion around what critical thinking means, because people are ready to say, I'm a critical thinker, let's have a critical dialogue about this. But really, that's not what they're saying. So you're an expert on this, please share. I also think there's a stigma against thinking too much. Like we live in this era where there's a lot of anxiety and uh, there's a lot of pressure uh, to be a certain way. And so we're overthinking, overanalyzing, and we put this um, negative viewpoint on thinking. So yeah, I would like- Like overthinking versus taking action? Yeah, just we. I think we get stuck stuck in thinking too much, and Thank we get you. so overwhelmed Thank with you. like all these thoughts and all these things that I need to do, and therefore we just become paralyzed. And um, I think really focusing on the baby steps of looking at it from like task to task to task can relieve the pressure of overanalyzing and thinking too much. What you say resonates a hundred percent with me. Overthinking leads to something I call analysis paralysis, okay? And that's what happens when you overthink something. I tell my students, if you've never studied the work of da Vinci, you should study it. And he said that the most elegant thing in the world is simplicity. So if you think about a device that is used to eat by three billion people on this earth, It has no tines. It has no serrated edges. It's the most simple device. It's a pair of chopsticks. Because in this case, the most elegant solution has the fewest number of steps and is the most simple. And that is called Occam's razor. And it's named after a monk, Father Occam, who's a mathematician. And so designers are sometimes guilty of overthinking. I often ask my students, if the teacher gave you another week, would you continue designing? And the answer is yes. So let's look at critical thinking and let's break up the two words. First, look at the word critical. What does critical mean to you, that word? Just what do you think it means? That it's necessary. Necessary, okay. Is it in fact more important than necessary? It's vital. So if I were, God forbid, having a heart attack and my heart stopped, 
you would put a defibrillator on me, and that's critical. Yeah. It's not important. It's critical because I'm going to die. So critical, in, in fact, is a very, very powerful word because what critical says is when I've solved the critical component, I've solved what is called the 80-20 rule. Almost all of the time, critical thinking says, if you solve the most important 20%, the other 80% will fall in. That's called the Pareto curve. It's called the 80-20 rule. And it's named after an Italian philosopher by the name of Pareto. So to me, when a designer is looking at a problem, the most important thing is to isolate what's important. So the word important is another of my favorite words because it's something that is very, very closely tied to critical because critical and important are components of each other. So a designer is given the challenge of coming up with a new ad campaign because milk sales in California were falling. This happened about 15 years ago. And a company in San Francisco called Goodby Silverstein Chris knows well, were given this job. They spent weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And eventually, as Goodby and Silverstein tell the story, they were in a state of paralysis. And the client was saying, come on. So they threw everything out and they said, here are a bunch of post-it notes. Put your thinking up on the wall. We've got to sell more milk. And the campaign was a man lying in a hospital bed, covered from head to toe in a plaster cast, and somebody gives him chocolate chip cookie, and the only thing showing is his mouth, and he looks with his eyes, and there's a glass of milk, and you know he can't. All the success of the campaign went through the roof. They got rid of everything that was superfluous. Critical thinking is getting rid of the noise, getting rid of the clutter, and focusing on, I have a saying, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. When we focus on what the problem is by carefully defining it, you know, Da Vinci said solving a problem is 90% focusing on what the problem is and 10% solving. Design sometimes goes the other way. So if we can focus on defining the problem, the core elements of it, once you have that, applying thinking skills is relatively easy. Analysis paralysis, it's everywhere. And you know, we live in a world today of big data because there's so much data that people now get master's degrees in universities in, in, in literally data analysis. Um, Imagine the amount of data that Facebook has. Well, if they were not able to analyze that with a clearly defined set of parameters, it would be completely overwhelming. But now it's worth billions of dollars. All our likes, all our interests, all our conversations, worth billions. Well, we have decided that our privacy doesn't matter anymore. And we've willingly done it. I mean, after all, two young boys in Santa Monica had an idea to create a camera company, except there were no cameras. And they had other people take the pictures, and they called it Instagram. 
and they sold it to Facebook for $1.3 billion. That's a good day. A couple of guys started a company called Pinterest, and who does all the work? You do all the work. They created the software. Well, don't be angry at them. Celebrate them. Emulate them. Ben and Jerry started their company with a $5 recipe for making ice cream after they had failed selling bagels in Brooklyn. Two Jewish boys couldn't sell bagels in Brooklyn. <laughs> Help me, somebody. But they... Bought this $5 course, and because they were both, they loved rock and roll, and their favorite band was the Grateful Dead, so the first flavor was obviously Cherry Garcia. She's the best. She's the bomb. (laughs) They started a company with $5. It's a remarkable thing. You see, you don't need money to start a great business. You need a fanafi. Find a need and fill it. That's all you need. What else do you need? For example, if your name was George de Mestral, you were a Swiss engineer and you were walking in Lausanne with your dog every morning. You guys like to hike? So when you go hiking, you know those little black things that stick to your socks? They're called cockleburrs, and they hurt like hell. When he came back, his sheepdog was full of cockleburrs. So he plucked them out one by one. One day his wife said, why don't you look at it under a microscope? He looked down the microscope, it was a little ball with hooks, and it was grabbing onto the dog's hair. He said to a friend of his, could you make this out of plastic? His friend said, sure. And he brought him back this thing, and then he asked his wife for a piece of velvet. And he threw this thing at the velvet, and it stuck. That's very interesting. He pulled it off, and it stuck again. So let's see. To knit in French is crochet. And in French, the word for velvet is velour. So if you marry velour and crochet, you end up with a company called Velcro, which George de Mestral patented, and for the next 27 years, earned one-seventh of a cent on every piece of Velcro sold. You see, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Venture capital, got to go out and raise venture capital. Ben and Jerry's, $5. George Ramestrel walking through the, the woods. You don't need money, you need great ideas. A FNAFI, find a need and fill it. Two product design students of mine said that every time they use an exacto knife, they would cut their hands because, you know, it's dangerous. So they developed a retractable exacto knife, licensed it. Exacto, and sat back and collected royalties. Are serious? Find a need and fill it. Yeah, man. Every I, I, time you run into a problem, the world is saying, you're going to be rich. All you got to do is solve the problem. Shima, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> I want to know. You're not inventing Velcro. You're not doing retractable blades. I'm just trying to help other people make some money with what they're already doing. And hopefully maybe I get to make some money off that. That's more than one-seventh of a cent. Who created that business deal? I mean, it worked, but... So can I reframe what you just said, (laughs) if I may? Absolutely. Okay. You said you want to help your clients make money. Yeah. May I humbly suggest that what I want you to do is to help your clients be the very best of who they are 
craft their skill until it is superb. And at that point, money will follow them. Right. You see, when we chase making money, it's like trying to catch a butterfly in a net that's got a hole in the back of it. Mm. Don't teach them to make money. Teach them to be the very best of who they are. That's correct. Because you see, people pay you for being the very best of who you are. And it's like my opportunity with my experience to come in and get people to the next level, getting them unstuck, putting them onto a path where, you know, assessing what's going on, saying, here's an opportunity. Let me help you see that new door, that possibility. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's not about... Money is what happens as an end result. Just like, you know, being coming healthy, the end result is like maybe fitting into your genes a little bit better. But it's it's not about fitting into the genes better. It's that journey of getting there. So yeah. that's a very important thing to focus on. For me, me trying to be of service, I sometimes skip that middle step and explaining that to people. Sure. Of like why they should work with me. But it's really key to explain that fundamental because I have to remember that people don't know what my intentions are and what keeps me up at night and what gets me up in the morning. They don't know that. That's why I need to share that with them. So imagine you are three brothers from Italy and you come to America to make blue jeans. And you make the blue jeans and nobody buys them. And eventually you're almost running out of money and your jeans won't sell. You've got less than 40 grand left. So you rent two floors in, in East 80th Street in New York and you hire 130 people with a table and a telephone. And you tell them to call every major store in America that sells jeans. And all you do is ask them one question. So I'm going to pretend I'm one of the people. Hello, is this Joe's Jeans? Hi. Can I ask you a quick question? Do you carry guest jeans? Okay, sorry. And in the next month, they made 180,000 calls. And then the three brothers walked into Bergdorf Goodman to the major buyer and said, hi, we're here from Guest Jeans. And they went, where the hell have you been? <laughs> so what do we call that? Not persuasion, persuasion. They literally persuaded people. It's an amazing thing that if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at will change. It's everything. I mean, without without the power of that, you know, being able to see things clearly, you have nothing. You're just, I mean, you're, you're getting to like 10% output. Isn't so. that what clarity is? Seeing the world the way it is versus the way you want it to be? See, when we develop a skill like that, seeing the world the way it is, wow, everything changes. Well, this has been... Fantastic, Arrow. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for inviting me. Really. I, I guess uh, Shima has a right to be mad at me. It's like, why didn't you tell me about Arrow 12 years ago when I was going through this? But we're going to make up for some lost time Seriously. now. Seriously. It's fair. I mean, wow. I mean, I'm, I'm so honored to be here. Like, I'm, well, like, well, it's my honestly. honor for being invited. So thank you. The Future is hosted by me, Chris Doe. The show was edited by Sarah Eskelson. Big thanks to Adam Sanborn, who composed our theme song. 
To subscribe to the future podcast, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now SoundCloud. Make sure you rate and review our episodes. Don't miss out on upcoming events, live streams, workshops, and announcements by going to thefuture.com and sign up for the newsletter link at the bottom. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Future Is Here. Thanks for listening. That's it for this episode. See you in the future.